And so we want to be very intentional about looking at the heart of David to see what God saw when he chose him as king. As we said last week, David was not chosen because of his impeccable character. Okay? The Bible is really honest about his flaws. David was not chosen because of a unique set of gifts and abilities. Some could argue that Saul was just as gifted, if not more so. In fact, David was just a boy when God anointed him as king. So clearly, he was choosing David not because of who he was, but the man he would become. And he knew that he would become that man because of something in his heart. In the end, I think the key to our understanding about what God saw is in a verse that we looked at last week. So if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and let's look again at verse 7. This verse actually has a direct connection to the passage that we'll look at this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says here, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this is where I want us to direct our attention. Remember in this setting, uh, Samuel had looked upon Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's boys, who looked like the obvious choice. This was God's response. He said, no, no, no. That may be the obvious choice, but it's not my choice. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. So as we go through our study together, I want to encourage us to really kind of compile an inventory of what we see about what's happening in David's heart. See, God's Word gives us insight into things that we simply would not be able to perceive on our own. In this case, it gives us a peek inside of David's heart. And and so, as we walk through this together, I want us to be really intentional. For example, after having been anointed as a king, we know that David goes back to resume his role as a shepherd. Now, we could read right past that, like it's no big deal, but if you really stop and think about it, it's significant. David has been anointed as king, but he doesn't feel like he's too big to go back and do what he was doing before that day ever happened. He resumes his role as a shepherd. Here he is standing with his seven other brothers, all of them who have been rejected, he being the baby of the family, probably like most of the babies of the family, picked on most of his life, and he didn't turn and rub it into his brother's face because he was chosen And they weren't. He just went back and did what he'd always done. The anointed king was faithful with sheep before God put him in charge of people. And the fact is, people are not all that different than sheep. So David's character was developed in the lonely fields outside of Bethlehem. His soul was nurtured in solitude. His motives were purified in obscurity. You see, those sheep never thanked David for the great job he was doing out there in the fields. When Saul was driven by the approval of people, as we talked about last week, 
David learned to be faithful with the insignificant monotony of taking care of sheep. And much like David, our character is also built in those moments where no one else knows about it, no one else notices, and quite frankly, no one else cares. But it is our faithfulness in the seemingly insignificant that prepares us for something bigger. And as we all know, there's something bigger around the corner for David. So let's look at that together. Turn over to chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. So they were in Israel territory. And they camped between Sokah and Azekah, the Ephes And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, nine feet, six inches tall. He had bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 200 pounds. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and bronze javelins slung between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron about 20 pounds his shield carrier also walked before him and he stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them why do you come out and draw up in battle array am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall become our servants and you shall serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. There's actually an important Hebrew word that's repeated six times in this chapter. We see it the first time in verse 10 when Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Along with defy, we're going to see words like taunt and mock and reproach. It's all based on that same Hebrew word. The author doesn't want us to miss the enemy's attitude towards Israel and their God. They launch these disparaging insults like cannonballs from a catapult. And as they land on the Israelite army, they all go hide in fear. You see, the Philistines believed there was no possible way that they could lose. They are like a playground bully picking on somebody half their size, which is not hard when you have a giant who stands nine feet six six inches tall, a giant who wears almost 200 pounds of armor, including a spear whose head weighs as much as a small toddler, almost 20 pounds. 
the whole point of Goliath's detailed description is to validate the confidence of the Philistines. Because you see, judging by his appearance and the height of his stature, Israel does not stand a chance. The battle, as Goliath explains, will be decided by two people. Goliath and his puny opponent, whoever that fool might be. Right? Winner takes all. Whoever wins, the other, the loser, becomes the slave of the winner. Those are the terms of the deal. Look at how it continues in verse 12. Now, David was the son of a Pathrite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul and advanced in years among men. The three older sons Jesse had had gone, before, gone after Saul to the, to the battle. And the names of these three sons who went in the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the second of him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. I want to highlight something that he's referring to here that we missed in between the end of what we looked at last week and the beginning of chapter 17. If you were to look at those verses, what you'll find is that David had a part-time job. In addition to being a faithful shepherd, he was also a very skilled musician. The psalms we read in the Bible are the words or the lyrics of music that he composed. And Saul was a very troubled man. And so David would leave the fields of Bethlehem and travel to the castle in Jerusalem so that he might be able to play music that would help calm the tormented soul of King Saul. He would move back and forth, day after day, from one to the other. And on this particular day, he was being called to do something different. Meanwhile, his oldest three brothers, we learn, are on the front lines of battle. They were doing real man's work. (laughs) while David was continuing to serve. And keep in mind that all the while, David and his brothers, they all know that David has been anointed as the next king. But we never once see David speak or act presumptuously. In fact, David was a king who was content to serve. Now think about what I just said. David was a king who was content to serve. Does that remind you of anyone? Does that remind you of the heart of our Savior? The king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Put that on your list the inventory of things that we see in the heart of David that made God smile. Let's look at our passage again, verse 16. And the Philistine came up forward uh, morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of, of roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. And look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back the news of them. For Saul and they had 
the men of, and the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and look, took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp which the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in the order to, to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. And When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled and were greatly afraid. So for 40 days, this bully strolled into Israel's camp taunting these repeated insults. And when he did, it says all the Israel's armies went to run and hide. We'll later learn they actually went inside their tent so nobody could see them. They were hiding. I believe Goliath actually walked into the Israel camp. And the reason I believe that's true is because back in verse 3, we have a very clear description that you have the Philistine camp on one side, you have the Israeli camp on the other side, and you have a valley in between. Well, we just read in verse 23 that Goliath came up from the Philistine camp. Well, Goliath can only come up after he goes down, so he's standing right in the middle of the Israelites, <laughs> taunting them and the God that they serve. And the response of the Israelite army Everyone runs and hides. The picture I have in my imagination is that kind of feeling you have when you're at a party, you're at a group, and they're going to do a game that you're really not interested in playing, right? They're picking teams, and so what do you do? You mysteriously, subtly disappear into the bathroom. Or you pick up your phone and pretend, excuse me, I've got an important call. Yeah, hold on just one second. And you disappear. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on here. Goliath is ready to play. He wants to fight, and no one's interested. They're going to subtly disappear inside their tent. David is an innocent bystander on this deal. What a coincidence. Just on the day that Goliath comes up, at the time that he enters in the camp, there stands David. And he hears everything that that army's been hearing for 40 days now. And I bet whenever Goliath made his appearance and everybody ran, David probably went with him. He may be hiding in a tent with his brothers as this is going on. But then when Goliath leaves, he steps out and looks around and says, guys, what just happened? And they'll explain to him. Look at verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him. And great riches will be given to him. His daughter and his father's house will be free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in one accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his older brother, heard what was, this, what was spoke by the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? 
Have you not, are you not whom, the one whom left those few sheep in the wilderness? I mean, I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. For you've come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from the other one another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. When these words of David spoke were heard, they were told them to Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail in account of him. Your servant, speaking of himself, David, I'll go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> then Saul said to David, You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight him? For you're just a boy. While he's been a warrior from since the time he was a boy. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came up and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him, and I attacked him, and I rescued that sheep from his mouth. When it rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant, O Saul, has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. <laughs> See, here's where we begin to discover the faith that we find inside David's heart. The men of Israel answer David's confusion with exactly what was at stake. They first begin with reward, as if to try to convince David that this is a really good deal. He says, look, whoever kills the Philistine, like it's no big deal, they're going to get riches in abundance, the king's daughter's hand in marriage, and they'll be tax-free, them and all their families, for the rest of their life. Now, this is a sweet deal, isn't it? But David doesn't really worry about the reward that's being promised. Look at what he says in verse 26. Basically asks, what about the reproach to Israel? What about the insult to the living God? Forget about what the victor gets. What about what he refuses to let happen anymore? What about refusing to let a pagan man taunt the armies? of the living God? What about refusing to let a pagan man bring reproach on God's chosen people? David's highlighting that word that I spoke of, that word of taunt, that word of rebuke, that belittling reproach that is being cast upon God and his people. Forget about the reward of winning a battle. What about the responsibility of protecting the name of our God. So Eliab, the oldest brother, steps in to help put things into perspective for David. <laughs> he says, listen here, little brother. You shouldn't be here anyway. Front lines of battle, you are just a boy. You're just a shepherd. We'll take care of the giant. You go mind the sheep. You're such a pain. You're always doing things to get in trouble. You don't belong here. Carry on. <laughs> nice brother, right? 
And, and like most little brothers who are belittled by their older brother, David looks at him and says, I just asked a question. What's wrong with that? What's going on here? And as they're having this dialogue, somebody goes and tells Saul about what's happening and what David's suggesting. And then all of a sudden, Saul enters the picture. And to be honest with you, I think Saul kind of adds injury to insult. When David bravely volunteers to face Goliath, in verse 33 it says, Saul's response was, yeah, but you're just a boy. In other words, look, little David. That's mighty brave of you, little boy. <laughs> but this is a giant who's an experienced warrior. And you're just a little shepherd boy who doesn't belong. And in Saul's defense, as we've talked about, David is just a boy compared to most of those men on the front lines. He's a teenager at best. But did you notice that David did not respond in a negative way towards the belittling comments of either his brother or the king. Instead, he was very respectful. In a sense, he responds to Saul and says, Yes, sir, I understand. And as your servant, I appreciate your concern. But let me share some things with you about my experience as a little shepherd boy. And then he goes on to describe a time when a lion came and he wrestled a lamb out of the lion's mouth. A time that a bear came and threatened his sheep, and he wrestled that bear and killed it. And not once did David say, look, see how strong and brave I am? I've got what it takes to kill this giant. Not what it said, is it? David says, look, here's the deal. What's more important than my life is God's honor. And this man is rejecting our covenant relationship and insulting the living God. I'll not fight to prove my strength. I will fight to defend his honor. He who delivered me in the field of sheep will do the same in the field of battle. Then Saul says, okay, carry on and the Lord be with you. To be honest, I don't think Saul cared a lick about David. I think he was more concerned about his own reputation and he wanted somebody who could win. He knew David wasn't going to be the guy, but better David than him. So he said, sure, carry on. And he gives him his armor. I think he did that to make himself feel better more than to actually help David because it's twice his size. David was still a boy. And Saul was much, much older. Remember, David was born 10 years after Saul became king. And so the armor didn't fit and that's not what he was trusting in anyway. So David refused and now we're getting to the good part. Look at verse 40. And he took a stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now the Philistine came on and approached David with a shield-bearer in front of him. <laughs> when the Philistine looked and saw David... He disdained him, for he was but a boy and ruddy with a handsome appearance. He hadn't seen the front line of battle for sure. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you should come play with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I'll give you flesh 
your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all these assembly may know, all my fellow soldiers, (laughs) that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung and and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and it sunk deep inside his forehead, and he fell face to the ground. Then David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck down the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Do you remember that verse back in chapter 16? Judging by Goliath's appearance and the height of his stature, David does not stand a chance. But God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And David had a heart of faith in God. You see, all the Israelites saw was an unbeatable giant. You know what David saw? He saw the living God. After all, there's not much difference between ferocious predators and arrogant enemies. Because David looked at both with faith. So much so that he could face that danger in hopes that God would prevail. God's faithfulness in the past is what gave David divine assurance in the moment. And once again, God came through. But even in that, let's not miss the significance of how this took place. Because God gave the victory through what the world would consider weakness. And our passage, if you'll look closely, is very clear to point it out. A sling and a stone defeated a sword and a shield. A small little boy defeated an enormous giant. An inexperienced shepherd prevailed over a very experienced warrior. Eliab said, you're such a pain. Saul said, you're just a boy. Goliath said, you're way too puny. But God's strength was revealed in the midst of David's weakness. For when we are weak, God is strong. His light shines brightest in those places that we fall short. The point of this story is not to highlight David's courage or the strength of his enemy, Goliath. This story is told to emphasize the faithfulness of God. Because God does not see as man sees. He uses the weak and despised to bring about miraculous redemption. That's what this story is about. That's what the author wants us to see. 
In fact, it reminds me of a passage in the New Testament. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, writing to the Corinthians before he rebuked them about communion, says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many of you wise according to the flesh, or not many mighty, not many noble. So basically, he's looking out into the church and saying, Hey, you're good people, but God didn't pick you because you're really impressive. What does he say? Verse 27. Says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. That's really what's happening in the story of David and Goliath. God is using the weak things in the world, the despised, the forsaken, to accomplish a redemptive outcome for his people. We should see the gospel in the story of David and Goliath. For example, you don't need to turn there. These verses are familiar. Isaiah 53, describing the Messiah that would come. Listen to the words. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, like one from whom we might hide our face. He was despised, there it is again, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserved fell on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. See, Jesus is the good shepherd. We are the lost sheep. He's the king who came to serve. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserved fell upon him. The weak and despised became our redemption. We should see the gospel in the story of David and Goliath. That's the main point. Because Jesus gives us victory through what the world considers weakness. He brings redemption through the scandal of the cross. The rejected Christ is our risen Lord. We are saved because of his victory over sin and death. So as we think about that this morning, I want us to consider some questions that I think get to the heart of the issue. All throughout our study of David, that's going to be our focus. What is it that God saw in the heart of David? Let's make an inventory. And I hope through this very familiar story this morning, you are able to pick up on some of those things. Things that we see in the heart of David that are reflected in the life of Christ. Ultimately, that's the point. These are the three questions. Please write these down. Number one. First question, do you see giants or do you see the living God? Do you see giants or do you see the living God? 
think so often when we, including me, when I encounter hard things, one of my quick responses is, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. There have been times in our marriage where we've struggled and I thought, I don't think I can do this. There have been times in raising a family we would encounter difficulties and I said, I don't think I can do this. There would be times when we would have sickness or disease or difficulty and I, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. But here's the problem. We're evaluating our success based on the size of our problem when really we should be evaluating our problem based on the size of our God. Think about it. Is there anything that you can think of in your lifetime that you could possibly encounter where you might conclude, you know, I'm not so sure that an all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing God could handle this? I mean, as those words come out of your mouth, do you see how silly that sounds? That's why Paul concludes, if God is for us, then what can be against us? The implication is obvious, right? Nothing. Nothing. I've encouraged you in this before, but I want to encourage you again. Just to kind of sometimes bring us back to the reality of who God is and how great He is. Read Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a great passage in Scripture that goes to length in describing in detail the bigness of who God is. And if you really want to blow your mind... I would encourage you to go to Job chapter 38. Just start reading there as God is replying to Job's questions about why his problems are so big. (laughs) And in the end, you don't need to turn there. This is one of my favorites. After hearing God speak to Job and describe the bigness of who he is, here's Job's response. Listen. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Well, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you answer me. Well, my ears have heard and I now know you, not just with my eyes, but with my heart. Therefore I despised myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, Job was complaining about how big his problems were, but here he's confessing that he's underestimated how big his God is. Always remember, as David said, the battle belongs to the Lord. If he's for us, then nothing can be against us. So, do you see giants, or do you see how big the living God really is? Question number two, do you fight for God's reputation or do you work to build your own? Do you fight for God's reputation or do you work to build your own? I think so often today, people don't want to get involved unless they can get credit, right? I'll volunteer as long as there's something to show for it. And when I do get involved, we need to make a big splash. We need to do something kind of breakthrough that's never been done before, something that will draw everyone's attention and say, Man, that was awesome. Were you involved? Oh, then you must be awesome. Serving God behind the scenes in an overcrowded soup kitchen? Not so much. Like David's brothers, we want to be on the front line doing big things for God. Not in the pasture, 
tending, smelly sheep. But God doesn't need us to do big things. God wants us to be faithful with the small things. After all, what did Jesus teach? He said, he who is faithful with very little is faithful with very much. But those who don't have integrity with the small things, my words, there'll be a disaster when it comes to bigger things. See, those who don't have integrity with small things will be a disaster when they encounter great things. God's strength shines brightest in our weakness. His grace is sufficient because His power is perfected in our weakness. That's the whole point. If you read the story of David and look at what they go to great lengths to describe, they're emphasizing the power of the giant and the weakness of David. The sword and the shield. The sling and the stone. They're trying to emphasize that God works through the weak things of the world to accomplish redemptive things for his people. So be honest. Do you fight for God's reputation or do you work to build your own? Another way of saying the same thing, is it more important for you to look good or for God to look good in you? Number three. Do you rely on God's faithfulness in the past to give you hope in the present? Do you rely on God's faithfulness in the past to give you hope in the present? You see, when David looked at Goliath, I think he saw lions. I think he saw bears. I think he saw moments in his life where God miraculously came through. Moments when he stepped out of what was comfortable and learned that God was faithful. See, I don't think seeing lions among sheep, predators among innocent animals, was all that uncommon. I really don't. I think it was part of the life of a shepherd. It was refusing to let those animals wreak havoc that was so unusual. David risked his life to save the sheep. He stood and fought when most everybody else would run and hide. His willingness to sacrifice was the secret to his faith. Because that's when he saw God show up in some amazing ways. My point here, David learned about God's faithfulness because he was willing to sacrifice. We often miss out because we play it safe. Miracles are extraordinary. They exist in the realm of the unexpected, not the safe and predictable. If you want to see God's hand at work, you're going to have to step out in faith. You're going to have to trust Him in things that you could not accomplish on your own. Relying on His faithfulness is ultimately what makes your faith strong. When David saw Goliath, he saw the living God. That's what compelled him to take a stand. So, Do you see giants? Or do you see the living God? Do you fight for God's reputation or do you work to build your own? Do you rely on God's faithfulness as your source of strength? Those are great questions to consider. And I really believe our passage highlights things that are in the heart of David that God wants us to see and nurture in our own. So let's ask the Lord to be gracious as we seek to do that.
Lord, as we uh, consider the significance of the truths in what is a very familiar passage, I pray that there were things that were spoken of by your word that did pierce our heart, that spoke to that deep part of us that brought conviction about who you've called us to be and what you promised to accomplish when we put our trust in you. <coughs> Father, I confess that I often see giants. <laughs> and help me see the living God. Father, help us be a people who do not run and hide, but stand and fight, not to prove our strength, but to defend your name. So that what people see in us brings glory to you. May we be a people after your own heart. We pray this in the name of our living God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.